What's up? It is really good to be back. I want to uh, do a couple of things before we get to teaching this morning. Um, one, I want to thank Les and Jake for stepping up, especially last week. They, they had planned, you know, a Sunday and a Wednesday of teaching each. They didn't plan the extra one that I called for um, as I just hadn't had enough vacation. So uh, thanks, guys. And uh, was Jake really pounding the pulpit? Because this thing's wobbly. I, you know what? It wasn't this way when I left. And I don't know. Um, on a serious note, I, I want to pray one more thing this morning. Uh, today is, has been declared the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church throughout the world. And according to ChristianityToday.com, over 245 million Christians live in the 50 countries ranked on the world watch list as worse for Christians. Between November 2017 and October 2018, 4,136 Christians were killed for their faith in these countries. Over 1,266 churches or Christian buildings were attacked, and 2,625 believers were detained, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. This is in 2019, actually 2017 to 2018, but it continues this year. The top 11 persecuting countries are China, Algeria, Egypt, Eritrea, India, Iran, Iraq, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Sri Lanka, and Turkey. And the reason we need to pray about this and at least be aware of this, and I invite you to be in prayer all day long for persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world who simply by having faith in Jesus are under intense persecution, unlike we understand. You know, sometimes in America we say, well, we're really under attack. Well, <laughs> not like these folks. But the reason we need to be focused, the Bible actually calls us to be. Hebrews chapter 13, verse three says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and treat those who are ill-treated or remember those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. So let's take a moment and, and pray for these right now. Holy Father, we come before you and we lift up your church. Lord Jesus, you said you would build your church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. And we recognize there is great evil in this world. There is wickedness in this world. It is satanic. It is demonic. It is spiritually led. But it is embraced by many who would seek to deny the name of Jesus. And Father, we pray for those who stand by faith, especially those who stand in persecuted nations especially those who are attacked for their faith. We lift up, Father, all those. You know the names, you know the ones. You know those who have been martyred for their faith. You know those, Lord, who are currently imprisoned for their faith, who understand persecution at such a level. And we pray, Father, comfort. We pray peace. And we pray, Lord, more than simply a, a soft prayer of protection, we pray, Lord, a serious prayer of your divine will being accomplished. For we recognize in this life that sometimes it is when we are under attack that you are the most glorified and the most is actually accomplished in your name. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we join with brothers and sisters around the world, even, even in the Chinese church, Lord, 
who would say, don't pray that our persecution stops because that would slow the gospel. Father, we pray that the gospel would march. And we pray that Christians here in America as well as worldwide would be bold with our faith and trusting in the eternality of our faith that is not limited to the circumstances of this life. We thank you, Father, for those who are standing in the name of Jesus. We stand alongside them and we pray, Holy Spirit, your will be done in Jesus' name, amen. 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 We'll keep remembering this throughout the day today. I encourage you to do that. We are in Genesis chapter six. Why? Because that's where we are. I trust me, I asked the Lord several times over the last three weeks, why? And he said, because that's where you are. So that's what we're gonna study this morning. I had to get all the way to verse eight because I needed to give you a little bit of hope. But this is a, a very strange Strange section of scripture. Let's read it through one more time. Genesis chapter six, verse one. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, or therefore, His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, Father, this is your word, so we ask you to explain it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of us are used to a good guys, bad guys mentality. It's, it's how we think in this world. It's, it's refined comfort in this. Us versus them. My team versus their team. My party versus their party. My party good, their party bad. My side right, their side wrong. We're right, they're wrong, end of story. That's how we like to think. We like to know our allies from our enemies, the thing is, everyone is capable of great good and great bad. The worst of all possible people can be saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the best of all possible people can be lost by rejecting our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the good and the bad and even the ugly, (laughs) these things come down to the reality that every human being can choose what we're gonna do. That the Lord determined this early on, Genesis 4, 7. Remember he was talking with Cain and the Lord said, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. You must do this. He left that door open for our choice from the earliest times. God was, dare I say, pro-choice, oh, not the way pro-choice is talked about in our culture, but he is for 
the freedom of humanity to make our decisions and to decide who we're going to follow, what we're going to do. And anyone, anyone can develop in any certain, in, in either direction, either good or bad. And I know this is very basic, but we've got to understand this going into chapter six. That my conscience can either be strengthened in the Holy Spirit of the living God, or it can be seared by my own sin. I can grow stronger in faith, trusting in Jesus, or I can become hardened, trusting in myself. That's up to me. That's a choice that God has given to me. And either way, whether I choose the spirit or the searing, the heart is the issue. The heart is always the issue. Some of you may have heard about my little heart issue. Three weeks ago, early in the evening, on a Thursday three weeks back, my brother and I flew down to California. Now, some of you know Cheryl was already down there caring for her grandfather. We'd had a family tragedy. She was down dealing with that. I was waiting to see if I was going to be needed to go down. My brother and I had planned a trip down to see our parents, so we headed down, and I figured, well, at least I'll be within an hour and a half, two hours of where Cheryl is, and I can get there if I need to. So we flew down on Thursday night. Alaska Airlines landed in the OC, Orange County, and my parents were there, picked us up, took us down to the house. So it's around 6, 7 o'clock, get in. It's a lovely temperate October in Southern California. Sat out on the back porch eating cookies and chatting and laughing and just enjoying being together. And around 10 o'clock, we, we had moved inside and we were talking some more and I was just feeling really sore. I'd moved some furniture around the day before, so my back was really sore anyway. And I thought, oh, I've got a sore back, but then... My shoulders started to hurt, and then my chest started to hurt, and then my chest started to really hurt, and the next thing I knew, I was on a luxurious ride in an ambulance to Mission Hospital. Got there about 11, and my heart was just pounding. I mean, it, it was heart attack, it was radiating out across my chest, running down my left arm, all the telltale signs. I'm lying there in the bed going, Jesus, this is it. Take care of Cheryl and the kids, you know. <laughs> the pain was severe, I kid you not. In fact, it was so bad. If you've ever had a heart attack, and I hope you haven't, but if you ever have, you understand this. It wasn't a heart attack, I'll let you know that. But the pain was so bad, every breath was a groan. I, I literally had to tell my parents, as they're standing in the corner of the hospital room, and my brother's there, I, I had to say, it's okay. Pericarditis. Now, if you were here at the bridge 10 years ago, you heard me talk about this before because the exact same thing happened to me 10 years ago. And it happened to me 11 years ago. So it happened, and then a year went by, it happened again. Pericarditis, it's very simply an inflammation of the lining of the heart, and they don't know why. In fact, what, what doctors typically will say, and if you're a doctor, uh, no offense, but they'll typically say, well, if we don't know why, let's just say it's a virus. If they tell you it's a virus, it's because they don't have a clue. <laughs> we got to blame something. Pericarditis, so the inflammation of the lining of the heart, which then presses in on the heart and causes that intense pain. Morphine is my friend. <laughs> Just saying, not only did my heart stop hurting, but I loved everyone. 
But we don't know the cause. Don't know why it happened 10 years ago. Don't know why it happened three weeks ago. Have no idea. I'm feeling much better. Thank you. But clearly, clearly, as Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But you know what? That's not a medical diagnosis. That's a spiritual diagnosis. That the heart is more deceitful than all else. The heart is desperately sick. And regardless of how good or bad any one of us think we might be, the heart is the issue and the heart needs healing. The heart needs healing. Jeremiah 17, 10 continues, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So our deeds do matter. But our deeds, Jesus says very clearly, come from the heart. Matthew 15, 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. It's a heart problem. It's a heart issue. And so being right with God depends on one thing alone, and that's trusting him by heart. A heart of faith in Jesus Christ. That will save you, nothing else will. And what's remarkable about having a, a heart of faith in Jesus is that trusting him allows him then to continue to maintain a healthy spiritual EKG, to take care of you, to, to grow you in the direction of the spirit as opposed to the direction of your sin choices. It's called sanctification. Faith in Jesus. Romans 10.8 says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. End of story. That's the truth. That's a marvelous, wonderful truth. Believe in your heart and you will be saved. Why? Because the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. The heart has to be healed. The heart has to be dealt with. Give your heart to Jesus and he will heal it. Give your heart to Jesus, he'll set it right. He'll save you. He'll maintain a healthy spiritual cardio system. As Romans eight twenty seven says, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So listen to this. The spiritual diagnosis is the one that matters. It's the one that is eternal, and spiritual means, indicates, supernatural. We have got to learn to get beyond the flesh. Supernatural. Beyond the state, the natural state of man or woman, to get to who we really are at heart. See, the heart in the scripture talks about the spirit. The spirit man, the spirit woman, which is supernatural, beyond the limitations of the flesh. And it's so important to understand this coming to Genesis chapter six. Because as we begin, we recognize this is a controversial text. And understanding that, our comprehension, your comprehension of what's really happening here depends upon how willing you are to accept the supernatural influencing the natural. If you don't believe in the supernatural, if you push back against the miraculous, 
If you say anything beyond, you know, what we can see and, and taste and, and hear and touch and smell and feel, if, if you say, no, anything beyond that is just made up stuff, then you're gonna have one opinion about what's actually happening here. If you're one who believes that we serve a supernatural God and that there really is a spirit realm and that the things taught in the Bible are true, if you buy the supernatural, you're gonna have a very different perspective, which is the one we're gonna look at and think about this morning. Now, that being said, your perspective on Genesis chapter six is not gonna save or condemn you. You can completely disagree with me this morning, be wrong, and still go to heaven. <laughs> but if you come to this passage believing that there are naturally good guys and bad guys, or in the case of this passage, good guys and bad girls, <laughs> you're gonna have a hard time making sense of this. So let's take a supernatural and systematic look at this this morning and see if we can sort it out. Looking again at verses one and two, now it came about. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Such strange goings on. Who are these sons of God and these daughters of men? Now, some take a very natural perspective and they look at this and they say, God was opposed to intermarriage between the sons of God and the daughters of men. And they would define it this way, that the sons of God, boy, because they're marrying the daughters of men, we're talking about languishing believers and lurid pagans. Clearly, the sons are righteous and the daughters are evil. We all know that to be true, right? the believing line of Seth, sons of God, marrying in with the unbelieving pagan line of Cain. In other words, Sethites good, Cainites bad. And that's a perspective that people will take to this passage. Be careful never to ascribe evil to an entire people group. Don't do that. All Iranians, bad. You know you have brothers and sisters in Christ in Iran. All Iraqis, evil. <laughs> no, not those who are following Jesus. All Americans, good. Uh. <laughs> Don't ascribe evil to an entire people group, male or female, Jew or Gentile, Seahawk or Buccaneer although that's a little easier <laughs> if you live in Washington. Evil is not born of gender. Evil is not born of genetics. Remember what Jesus said. It is all about what comes out of the heart. So if you say Sethite's good, Cainite's bad, your theology's bad. Because we've already looked at this, haven't we? We've already seen that in the line of Cain, there had to be some believers, some who were named after God. And while the line of Seth, beginning with Seth and continuing on, men did begin to be called by the name of God, called after the name of God, that doesn't mean the entire line was spot on. That there's sin in the line of Cain and there's sin in the line of Seth. It goes both ways. And I wanna give you some reasons this morning why I believe this just can't be the case. That the sons of God does not mean the line of Seth and the daughters of men does not mean the line of Cain. Let's take these. I'll give you seven reasons why. Number one, a common humanity. 
a common humanity. The use of the word men in verse one, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land. Men is generic. The phrase in the Hebrew is ha-adam. Ha-adam, when ha-adam began to multiply, it's like saying when humanity began to multiply. When mankind, men and women together, humanity began to multiply. And by the way, it's impossible any other way. Multiplication. Humanity doesn't multiply unless a man and a woman come together. That's the only way it works which is part of the reason why the Bible makes it very clear that outside of the male-female relationship, the other relationships are not, they're not biblical, they're not legit, they're not godly. Because no other relationship can then produce and continue the call of God to multiply and be fruitful. Men and women, so, so the word here is it's generic, a common humanity when humanity began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. So daughters are born to men as well as to women, so you can't single out women. It's just humanity multiplying. It's like what he said in Genesis chapter five, verse two. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them Adam. Named them Adam, humanity, all together in the day they were created. He's gonna say that again in the next verse or down in verse three, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with Adam forever. Mankind, all-inclusive, a common humanity. And the point I'm making is simply this, men and women from Cain and Seth began to multiply the human race. So both lines were involved in the multiplication of humanity and descendants from both the line of Seth and Cain died in the flood. So evil was growing throughout. It was not one versus the other. And you know as we get further into this story that only one family was saved. Again, your lineage can't save you. Only faith in the grace of God can do that. So the passage begins with this common humanity and then, number two, we note a collective femininity. That is, while the first phrase of verse one refers to all humanity, the second phrase refers specifically to all daughters. All daughters. Sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. So are all daughters a bunch of evil temptresses? Are we, are we willing to say that generically across the board, daughters of men, which would be all the daughters were coquettish. <laughs> we're trying to lure these, these holy, godly sons into their lair. I don't think so. Again, daughters are born to men and to women, and daughters is never a term used to describe an unbelieving group, ever. Anywhere in the Bible. In fact, the phrase daughters of men is only used here a couple of times. It's never in inclusive of men. So daughters of men isn't inclusive of men. It doesn't involve sons as well. And men are as capable of choosing good and evil as much as our sisters are. I know that's a shocker to many of you. 
But biblically, what I'm saying is believers and non-believers are not classified as sons versus daughters. Sons, yes. Followers of Jesus are called sons, all of us, male and female, to become sons of God. Anyone, in fact, can be a son of God by faith. Anyone. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 44 and 45, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And he's talking to all of us, brothers and sisters, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And of course, John writes in John 1, verse 12, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. So it's true that all sons and daughters, all men and women, male and female believers in Jesus are together referred to as sons. But you need to understand something here in the Hebrew. This phrase, sons of God, is never used of believers in the Old Testament. The phrase. It's never applied. It's not applied to Israel. It's not applied to those who believed in God prior to Israel. And daughters is never the opposite or the antithesis of believers, as I've already stated. Daughters of men here refers to a collective femininity. Women from both lineages, Cain and Seth, born of fathers and mothers. But here is the evil. Number three, a chauvinistic inequity. A chauvinistic inequity. Verse two says the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whoever they choose or chose. Note that the taking is one-sided. They took. Who took? The sons of God, whoever these sons of God are, they took for themselves whoever they wanted, whoever they chose. From among the daughters of men, they took. The taking is one-sided. The issue is not forbidding intermarriage. It's not that they were marrying outside of their line. There had been no prescription up to this point that they couldn't do that. There, there, God didn't say to the line of Seth, don't marry outside of this lineage. You stay within your own. In fact, he wouldn't even say that until Israel, further on, Deuteronomy 7, 3, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. So at the time of Israel, as they were growing, and Moses is leading them out to the promised land and to the edge of the land, God said, I want you to stay pure in faith. That was really the issue. Stay within the tribes of Israel. Why? Because faith does matter in a marriage. By the way, it still matters in a marriage. Just remember that, especially if you're not married, if you're looking to be married, if you're thinking about marriage. Faith matters. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And an unbeliever would hear that and say, how offensive. 
And a believer might hear that and say, yeah, that's because we're better. And both would be wrong because the issue, once again, is the heart. Believer is simply someone who trusts in Jesus, right? But it makes a marriage difficult. It makes a marriage painful. There is a constant pulling against each other. What's sad is that oftentimes early on, a young couple, oh, we're in love, and, and everything's perfect, and everything's beautiful, and there are flowers, and birds are singing, and he loves me, and she digs me, and together we can make this work. I know I believe in you, but we can make this work, and that's fine at first, but all that's going to wear off. The birds will stop singing. The flowers are going to shrivel up. And at some point, you have to get eye to eye and say, what do we believe about eternity? So, yeah, it's true. There is a, a biblical call to think about what you're doing and make sure you're aligning with faith. But that's not what's going on here. There is a chauvinistic inequity in that these sons of God are taking women for themselves. And by the way, the word that is translated in your Bible, wives, is not wives. It's the same word we already saw when Adam said, she shall be bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Let's call her woman, for she was taken out of man, and the word is Isha. They took Isha for themselves. These sons of God were taking women for themselves. And the word taking there in the Hebrew speaks of a sexual union, not a marital union. There was sex going on here. Marriage is not even implied. So these sons of God with this chauvinistic inequity, note that we don't see daughters of men taking or daughters of God taking sons of men. We just see these sons of God and they are taking women for themselves. What is going on here? Who are the sons of God? Okay, let's answer the question. Number four, a celestial identity. A celestial identity. The phrase sons of God in the Hebrew is bene Elohim. Bene Elohim, which is a phrase that in the Hebrew Bible only ever refers to angels. The sons of God we're taking women. Now, stay with me on this, because some of you would go, that is impossible. Supernatural. Job chapter one, verse six says, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them, the Bene Elohim. Satan was a son of God. You understand that, Satan being an angel prior to his fall. Job chapter two, verse one. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, Bene Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. So Satan among the sons of God, because he's a created angelic being, among created angelic beings, and Job tells us that they were coming before the Lord to present themselves to the Lord, these Bene Elohim. Now, this is interesting to me because later in Job chapter 38, verse seven, it tells us the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. When was that? At creation. So these sons of God, these Bene Elohim, were already present when the world was being created and were not a product of creation on the sixth day. And get this, the book of Job was probably written before Genesis. The Bible indicates, Jesus tells us, that Moses authored the, the Torah. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So that was written at the time Moses came along. Job existed in the days of Abraham, we believe. I'll show you why later on in Genesis. So if Job was prior to Moses, that makes Job the oldest book in the Bible. And if Job is the oldest book in the Bible, and I believe it legitimately is, if it was written before Genesis, that means that this phrase, sons of God, bene Elohim, was already established to mean angels to the Jewish people. So by the time Moses sat down to write Genesis, to even use the phrase bene Elohim, they would have understood that's angels. That's what's happening here. The closest we get anywhere else in the Old Testament to sons of God, to this phrase, bene Elohim, is a variation of it. It's bene Elim, and it still talks about angels. Psalm 29, verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, bene Elim, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Psalm 89, verse 6, for who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty, the bene Elim, is like the Lord? Those in the skies Angels. Sons of God here is not, in my opinion, an earthly but a celestial identity. We are talking about angels. It meant angels then. It still means angels today. And do you know the purely human-on-human view that sons of God was Sethites and daughters of men was Cainites, that view wasn't even proposed until the late 4th, early 5th century by Augustine. Church didn't even see it that way for four to 500 years? And then all of a sudden, Augustine said, well. See, now Augustine, for all the good things that he wrote and said, Augustine was also the allegorizer. He was the one who started taking scripture and saying, maybe it doesn't really mean what it says. Maybe the Bible can mean all kinds of different things, and we can reinterpret it that way, rather than allowing the scripture to be the scripture, just to Take it at face value, allowing God to say what he means and mean what he says. So strange as this may seem, something supernatural and inhuman and ungodly is going on here. By the way, the Jewish translators of the Old Testament, that Septuagint, you've heard me mention the Septuagint many times, They translated the Old Testament into Greek in the Septuagint, and they used this phrase in the Septuagint, hoi angeloi totheoi, angels of God. So if you're reading the Septuagint, the Bible Jesus read, then you would see that the angels of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took women for themselves, whoever they chose. This is a supernatural event. Now, some will argue the point, so let's address it. Some say, what about Matthew 22? What about it? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22. Let's check this out. Having fun yet? I am. Matthew 22, verse 23. Jesus is having conversation with a sad group of people. Matthew 22, 23, on that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, which, of course, is why they are sad, you see, came to Jesus and they questioned him, asking, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife, raise up children for his brother. 
Now there were seven brothers with us. And the first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. Great life. Verse 28, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. (laughs) We got him, said those sad saps. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor, note this, nor the power of God. If you take the scriptures without the power of God, you will never understand the scriptures. You take the scriptures and the power of God, hand in hand, you're holding, by the way, a supernatural book. You don't understand this, Jesus says. Verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Aha, says the opponent of the sons of God being angels and taking daughters of men. Aha, angels are sexless, genderless, because we'll be like them when we're in heaven and there won't be any more marriage. Jesus goes on and says, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read What was spoken to you by God? I am God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Understand this. People who would say angels are sexless, therefore the sons of God taking to themselves the daughters of men and producing offspring, that's not possible because angels are genderless. Well, that's very interesting because in both the Hebrew and the Greek texts of the Bible, Angels are always masculine, always, always. You will never find an angel referred to in the feminine in the Bible, which really messes up a lot of our Christmas decor. (laughs) We were in Leavenworth just this last week and we went into the Kris Kringle uh, shop there, Christmas shop, and every angel, I couldn't find one male angel. Not one that was studly. Not one with more than one face either. I mean, it really bugged me. I want to see a cherubim, a real cherubim. Eyes on his wings, four faces looking and all. That's what I want on a tree topper. I've told you this before. <laughs> I would put that on my tree and scare children all over the place. Number five in your notes, angels have a certain masculinity. They are always masculine. Now, in the Hebrew, there's only a a masculine and a feminine form. So you can say, well, 50-50, so they just go with a masculine, and that's just, that's why, you know. But then you get to the Greek New Testament, and the Greek language has masculine, feminine, and neuter. The Greek language has a way to write a sexless creature, but the neuter form is never used of angels. It is, again, always masculine. Always masculine angels are awesome. Now, not to say that feminine angels wouldn't be awesome. I mean, you know, if you wanna work out, ladies, that's fine. You can be awesome, too. But I'm saying there is something to the masculinity of angels, even to the point that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that a woman should pray with her head covered because of the angels, what does that mean? I have no idea. Just thought just came to mind. But they're, they're masculine. Something else here in Matthew 22, verse 30, where it says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Note, he's talking, Jesus is talking about marriage. 
Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2 is not talking about marriage. It's talking about taking. Marriage, some say, well, that's implied. It's not said. It's not in the text. Jesus is talking about marriage, and note this, Jesus is talking about that those in the resurrection neither marry nor are given in marriage are like the angels? No, they're like the angels in heaven. The angels in heaven. We will be like the angels who know their proper place, who know their proper abode, if you will. Genesis chapter six, go back there now, deals with angels not in heaven but on earth, fallen angels, and I'll prove it to you. Fallen angels, these bene Elohim, created angelic, created sons of God, now fallen and on the earth. Angels in heaven do not marry. Marriage is not a thing in heaven, and I've said before, and I'll say it again this morning, I believe because when we are together with Jesus in heaven, we will understand an intimacy and relationship that far surpasses the best marriage on earth with everyone. We will be family like we were meant to be. We will know intimacy with Jesus like we're meant to know intimacy. And marriage now, it's a picture of that. It's to help us to try to understand that, the self-sacrifice that goes into an intimate, godly relationship. But man, when we're there, we'll be like the angels in heaven. And marriage will not be a thing. Angels in heaven don't marry. And they don't make little baby cupids. <laughs> little baby angels, there's no such thing. Cute little baby with wings. If I was a cherub, I would be so offended. You are, you're calling cherubs, and that's what we do in our language, right? We say cherubs are little baby angels with cute little wings, right? Read Ezekiel chapter one and 10 and tell me what a cherub really looks like. I ain't no baby. So in heaven, we will not marry or be given in marriage, but guess what? On earth, we do. On earth, there is that union, and the plain sense of Scripture indicates that on the earth, angels who rejected their rightful place in heaven were actually able to reproduce with women something supernatural, and this is where people go, okay, that's just bizarre. You're telling me these spiritual beings came to earth and took women and got them pregnant? That, that, that's impossible. Really? Is it possible for angels to procreate with women? Well, let me ask you this. In Genesis 18, do you know that angels appear as men and they take a meal with Abraham? These spiritual beings eating physical food with Abraham, bread and meat that's brought out before them. That's not a problem. I mean, it's not like, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, when you go down in there and there's a skeleton and it's drinking wine and you're seeing the wine go right down. That's not what it was like. The angels and, and, the, and the Lord there with Abraham and they eat bread and it goes plop onto the ground. Oops, it just kind of falls right through them because they're spirit, right? They ate. In Genesis 19, the sin-sick men of Sodom saw the angels who had come to warn Lot and they desired them as flesh. They wanted these guys. They pounded on Lot's door to send the angels out. They didn't know they were angels. They just looked like men like any other men. They looked like flesh. They were solid. And these men of Sodom wanted 
these men, these angels who had come to visit Lot. Lot's at the door. Genesis 19 tells us that the angels physically grab hold of Lot and pull him back inside and slam the door shut to save him. There's something physical going on here. Contact, influence, if you will, from the spirit to the physical realm, and these angels had the ability to eat, to grab hold of Lot. In Acts chapter 12, verse seven, an angel of the Lord woke up Peter in a prison cell by whacking him on the side. Read the verse. He tries to wake up Peter. Peter thinks he's dreaming, so the angel just goes, Pfft. Physical interaction. What I'm saying to you is simply this. The spiritual can interact with and take on the physical. And Christianity is a supernatural faith. We have to accept. We have this idea that spiritual means vague. You know, our spiritual notions are, are esoteric. They're misty. They're not real. But what the Bible describes spiritually is more solid than the chairs on which you sit. More solid than the ground beneath our feet. That's reality. That's a truth beyond the truth we understand. And I don't know why, but people still try to explain away or limit God's supernatural interventions. God's supernatural work. I'm not talking about charismania. I'm talking about sound, biblical, spiritual living. Understanding when you pray for healing that God doesn't just sprinkle fairy dust on you. That the hands of the Lord go in and work. That there is influence from the spirit onto the physical. What we're talking about is learning how to live beyond the natural. Beyond the natural man, beyond the natural woman, I know we're limited by these bodies, but our faith is limitless. And what God can accomplish in our lives and in you and through me is, is beyond the natural. And again, if you accept this book as the word of God, you have already accepted a supernatural communication. Meanwhile, back in Genesis 6, the supernatural invasion here was, note this, number six, a context for calamity. A context for, what, what Moses is doing as he's writing this, and first describing the sons of God taking the daughters of men, he's giving the background for the flood, for why this all took place. And Jude shines a little light on that for us. Let me just read this to you. The book of Jude, or the letter of Jude, verse six, says, angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since in the same way as these, they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, that is, other flesh, they're exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Divine judgment is the basis for this explanation that we're laying out a picture. Why would God flood the world? Why would God do such a thing? And Moses begins with these sons of God, these angelic beings taking women and procreating with them. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says such a worldwide catastrophe would require an unusual cause. By the way, the Apostle Peter fully agreed with this, 
this whole idea of a fallen angelic corruption in the world. Second Peter chapter two, verse four. Turn in your Bibles there. Look at that for just a moment. We got plenty of time. Game's not until one. <laughs> Second Peter chapter two. Watch this. 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter is close to the end of the New Testament. And I'll pick it up in verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, okay, so angels can sin, right? But cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. By the way, the word hell there is Tartarus the pit. You students of Revelation, remember Revelation chapter nine? There's a pit that's opened and out of this pit come these demonic, ugly, grotesque, I think that's what we're talking about, same fallen angels that are incarcerated after the fact, after the flood. But read on. He cast them into hell, committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah. So Peter right there tells us, here's the deal. Prior to the flood, there was an issue on planet Earth where angels were sinning. And God spared Noah, preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Side note, if you're a follower of Jesus and you don't want to be tormented day after day by lawless deeds, stop living in Sodom and Gomorrah. What do you mean? I mean, stop putting yourself in a position where you gotta deal with things that are painful to your faith, that hurt your spirit, that deny your sanctification. See, that's a choice that we all have as well. We can, we can watch shows, see movies, read books, listen to music, engage with other people, go to places that hurt the spirit. And Lot, because he thought it was beautiful, chose to live in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it ended up a torment to him because it was so opposed to his own righteousness, his faith in the Lord. Where in the world are we? Verse 10, and especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and and despise authority. So if the flood teaches us anything, it teaches us that there was some deep, dark corruption going on, darker than anything that's happened since. By the way, that's, that's the reason people say, why hasn't God flooded the world since then? If, if he did it then, why not in the last 4,000 years? It hasn't gotten quite as corrupt as it was at that time. Oh, we're working on it. But there was a corruption taking place at that time that was far worse than even where we are today. And if the flood teaches us anything else, it's that there comes a day when the patience of God gives out. When God says, that's it, enough is enough, I've had it. Genesis six, verse three, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, 
because he is also flesh. Therefore, your Bible say, nevertheless, the word in the Hebrew is better translated, therefore his days shall be 120 years. God's not gonna strive forever. The word strive in the Hebrew, yadon, this is the only time it's used in the entire Bible, and it either means to restrain or to remain. God's saying, I will not remain with this, or, or God's saying, I will not restrain this rebellion forever. God remained, God restrained, but at this point it got so corrupt he wouldn't do it any longer. Does that sound at all familiar? Remaining and restraining. You see, history's gonna repeat itself to a degree, not, not with a global flood, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse six says, you know what restrains him now. Speaking of Antichrist, there's something restraining the evil of the Antichrist, which is an influence, a spiritual influence on the physical. You know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. The Spirit of God, I believe, working in and through the church in the world will, is right now restraining this evil influence until the church is taken out, until the Spirit is taken out of the way, and then there's gonna be such a flood of evil. And I ask you this morning, how much longer do you believe his Spirit will remain and restrain? Because there comes a point where God says, I will not do this anymore. Personally, one of the best verses in all the scripture for me, Psalm 46, verse 10, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. But because he's flesh, God says, nevertheless, or therefore his days shall be 120 years. And that became, after the flood, that became the long side of the lifespan of humanity. We drop from an average in the 900s of years down to 120 is like max. But we also recognize it's twofold here that it was 120 years from this point to the flood. 120 more years and the world was destroyed. Verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, the Bene Elohim came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. And those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So number seven in your list, if you're keeping track of this and following through, a children of notoriety, the Nephilim. The Nephilim, this is a very interesting word and it kind of puts a final point or a cap on all of this. The Nephilim, they came in, these sons of God, these Ben Elohim, came in, took daughters of men. The daughters of men bore children who became men of renown. The word renown there, Bible students, you may find this interesting, is Hashem, the name. Jewish people today won't say Yahweh or Jehovah or they won't try to name God. They'll say Hashem, the name. They just call him the name out of respect. But these were men of the name, men of repute, men who were so famous, they were infamous. These were men who sought to make a name for themselves. And by the way, note that there were no female Nephilim. 
Interesting. The word is masculine, mighty men, men of renown, men of a name, ungodly men of fame seeking a name for themselves. Listen, that's not why we're here. You are not here, I am not here to leave my mark, to make a name for myself, to be known by my name and to be remembered among all the people of the world for the things that I accomplished. No, I am here, you are here to bring glory, honor, and praise to the name of Jesus Christ. But these guys were making a name for themselves, men of renown. You know when it's all said and done, Philippians 2.9 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's interesting is these men of renown, born of the sons of God, coming in and taking daughters of men. These men of renown, do any of you know their names? See, after the flood, their names ceased to exist. They were wiped out from the memory of of humanity. Now, some will say, ah, I don't think so, Pastor, because I read somewhere that the Nephilim were there after the flood, too. Anyone remember that? The Nephilim are mentioned in Scripture after the flood. So how can you say they were all wiped out in the flood? If it was only Noah's family that survived the flood, then how can these Nephilim still be here after the fact? They're, they weren't. They weren't. Well, Numbers 13, 33 says, by the way, good recall of scripture there. <laughs> we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight. So that word Nephilim is used again in Numbers 13, 33. By who? By the 10 spies who were trying to discourage the children of Israel from going into the land. And in their discouragement, they were lying. We saw the Nephilim. Well, that would strike fear into the hearts. They're back. They're back among us. Yeah, they were huge, these Nephilim, these big guys. We saw them there. And the spies were trying to discourage and deceive the children of Israel from going into the promised land, with the exception of two, Joshua and mad dog Caleb. Caleb, who in Numbers 13.30 quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. And I mention that to say two things. Number one, the Nephilim were not here after the flood. It was used by guys who were afraid to try and make the people afraid. That's the only other use of the word. And secondly, just understand that no matter how big the enemy may seem, if God is for you, who can be against you? Where's the threat? I thought about that the last week or two of my life. How big's the threat really if God is for us? If he has us, what am I afraid of? I don't care how big the threat may seem. The Hebrew word Nephilim, and I'm just about done here, but again, we're just trying to build a systematic case for understanding this. The Hebrew word Nephilim or Nephilim the King James Version, if you're using a King James Bible right now, translates it giants. But that's not the Hebrew translation of the word. The Jewish translation, the Hebrew translation is better, get this, fallen ones. Fallen ones. 
The Nephilim are the follow, fallen ones. Well, then why does the King James say giants? Because they base it off the Septuagint. Now, don't let me lose you here. Remember the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And the Greek the Hebrew translators who translated the Bible into Greek about 280 years before Jesus, they used the word gigantes, where we get our word giants. So the gigantes were in the land, Nephilim, they translated to gigantes, which is very interesting because in the Greek it doesn't mean giants. Gigantes in the Greek literally translates titans. The titans were in the world. Now, if you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that the titans were the half-god, half-men offspring of a god and a woman. The translators found the best word in Greek they could find to describe exactly who these sons of God were, who the Nephilim were, the offspring of angels and women. They're just painting that picture and by the way, both Greek and Roman god myths have their roots in history. Most of our stories, though they may seem bizarre or may get twisted, have some bearing in the truth. And so when you, you know, no, there's no Zeus and Hercules and all the, Jercules, all the different uh, <laughs> Greek myths, but they have their roots in this story right here. That there was a point where the sons of God, fallen angels came and took for themselves daughters of men and they had offspring. By the way, in the Greco-Roman God myths, the Titans, the Gigantes, we might even say the Nephilim are pictured as glorious beings. Here in the Bible, they're corruptions. They're not what God intended. Now some would say, well, why, would, why would Satan do this? Why would Angels come to women, I mean, other than the, the sin sickness of their own fall and their desire, why would Satan get involved with this and be behind this? Remember that it was the curse spoken directly to him that said the seed of woman would crush his head. Genesis 3, 15. So if you can corrupt the bloodline of humanity, you can undo the curse. And you can undermine the very word of God. So let's get in and mess this up the best that we can. And a primary reason for the flood was to exterminate the ungodly offspring of fallen angels that were now on the earth. And you know what happened to them? These titans sank like the Titanic. They went down in the flood. Verse five, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. See, now Moses is shifting. He's talked about the wickedness of fallen angels and the corruption that had come onto the earth and had taken place and was the basis for all of this, but the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sometimes I think we're awfully close to that very thing right now. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And I don't understand, you know, if people would just read this as it's written, you would recognize we didn't have this mean-spirited God in the heavens saying, I'm just I'm done with them. I'm gonna wipe them out. I'm just gonna flood the world. 
They mean nothing to me. If you read the biblical account, God was grieving. And you don't grieve unless you have deep feelings for those over whom you are grieving. You don't feel the pain. If God didn't love so much, if he didn't care so deeply, he would not have been so grieved. The flood was most painful to God. It's not something he wanted to do. It pained his heart to do it. But listen to the sweetest verses in the whole passage. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Wow. Noah found favor. The word also can mean grace, compassion. He didn't win it. He didn't work for it. He didn't earn it. He did not deserve it. Noah just found it. Maybe you understand that. I just found Jesus one day. Well, the truth is he found you. I just ran across, I just kind of bumped into grace. <laughs> I walked into favor. I found favor. That's always how it works. And notice where Noah found favor, in the eyes of the Lord. That's always where favor is found. That's where you go to see grace. I think about the rich young man who came to Jesus and wanted to work the law, and he had worked so hard and had done so much and was so righteous and holy in his own deeds and his own behavior. You can read the story in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It tells us that looking at him, Jesus felt love for him because you always find favor in the eyes of the Lord. I think about Peter. After his third denial, as he sank deeper and deeper into his own sin sickness, his own broken heart, and right after that third denial, I don't know who you're talking about, Peter said, and Luke tells us that the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and I suspect with tears of love, not judgment. Because you find favor in the eyes of the Lord. Second Chronicles 16, nine says, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Is your heart his? Does your heart belong to Jesus? Have you, have you given it over? Not some of it, all of it. Give your heart to Jesus. Listen, final thing. How did Noah find God's favor in the midst of such a titanic global mess when things were so corrupt and so wicked, so evil worldwide. And by the way, I think I mentioned this before. We'll look at why on Wednesday night, but it's entirely likely that the population of Earth was bigger than it is today. More people inhabiting the planet than do even right now. And I'll show you how that, the math works out on that. But how does one man and his wife and kids, how, these eight people, how? How did Noah find God's favor in the midst of such a mess? And verse nine tells us. These are the records of the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Underline this verse. Noah walked with God. How do you find favor in the eyes of the Lord? Well, if you wanna look in the eyes of the Lord, you gotta be close enough to see him. And you're not running with the Lord. When Cheryl and I go running, I'm telling you, we're not looking lovingly into each other's eyes. <laughs> Typically, I'm looking at the back of her head. Wait up, slow down. 
When you go walking with someone, you can look right into their eyes. Noah walked with God, like his great-grandpa, Enoch. Remember what the Bible says there? Enoch walked with God, and God took him home. Noah walked with God. We're beginning to see a standard here of what faith really looks like. It's not those who run. It's not those who labor. It's not those who are working so hard to get it done. It's those who are walking with God. A step at a time, a day at a time. We're not in a hurry here. But Rick, we've got to save the world. You're not gonna save the world. But your neighbor, who is just a few steps of a walk around the corner from you, you may be used to save her or him. We walk with God. Hebrews eleven seven says, by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith Noah walked with God. And that's what you're invited to do. That's how we find favor in the eyes of the Lord. We walk with Jesus by faith. I I don't need the sympathy or the pity. It's been a rough month. If you're aware of the things that have happened in my family, this has been probably the toughest month Cheryl and I can remember. Last week was great, very restful. But I'll tell you something. Jesus hasn't missed a step. Many of you have gone through more difficult months than my family's gone through, and you know what I'm talking about. Jesus doesn't miss a step. I trip, I run ahead, I lag behind. Jesus, he walks. He never takes his eyes off us. And he supernaturally intervenes in my physical life. And I don't know why anyone would ever want to live any other way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the reminder, though on the negative side we recognize there is an influence of evil. There is an influence, a spiritual darkness that does impact and affect humanity. But oh, praise the Lord, we have an influence, the influence of your Holy Spirit. An influence, Lord, as your word says, that remains and restrains so that we can be those who cease striving and know that you are God. Oh, Holy Spirit, remain with us. Restrain from this place. Restrain from us as your children. Restrain evil. Pull back the darkness. Father, I ask that you would work in such a way that the darkness itself, those dark spirits and demonic entities would be pushed back in the lives of those with whom we have contact would be pushed back so they can, as we've prayed before, make unhindered choices for Jesus. I pray that you would push against the evil that would seek to destroy your children. I pray, Father, that the presence of your spirit be so strong among us that we would be a people of supernatural love and supernatural faith and supernatural hope. 
with nothing to fear. There is no darkness that we need fear, no Nephilim, no giant problems. We just fear you, Lord, with a holy, deep reverence. And we pray you would remain among us. Thank you for being so good to us in Jesus' name. Amen.